marriage is a marathon. And if you want to do it well, I've got some practical advice for you. In fact, I'm going to give you seven practical keys to help you understand and also to implement into your marriage. If you're not able to do this, or if you're not doing this currently, it's likely that hostility will come. Harmony will be a lost dream. I want you to know that there is transformative hope in the gospel. And so as you follow along in this case study that I'm going to share with you, it would be great if you are married that you take the time to assess your marriage and to see how it needs to change. But more than just giving an assessment, will you make a specific plan, a practical plan that you can implement, that you and your spouse can work together own. If you're not at the place, then let's say that hostility is here now, is present tense, and you can't talk to each other because of unresolved conflict, would you would you get in touch with someone, a competent disciple maker, preferably inside your local church, and share this podcast and article with that person, and then you pray about, let's see what we can do to start moving forward. Welcome to the podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and the title of this one is How to Move Your Marriage from Hostility to Harmony, and you can read everything that I'm sharing with you in this podcast on our website. Again, How to Move Your Marriage from Hostility to Harmony. If you type the word hostility in the search box, you will find it. Dan asked the question, he says, how do you find time to write all of those articles? That's a good question. It's, it's kind of in-depth, but simply stated, first of all, our ministry is, is wrapping up our 12th year of ministry. It'll be July the 3rd of 2020, and the primary reason that I'm able to do this is because we are a nonprofit organization, and so people choose to underwrite this ministry by their financial support. And if you want to do that, please go on our website to see how to do that. And of course, you can ask by clicking the uh, contact link on our website, and we'll be glad to walk you through that process. But that's how I do it. There's no way that we could provide the resources that we do if it wasn't underwritten by a lot of people. And so I'm very grateful for those who do support the ministry. Also, thank you to uh, Dan and Andy. I just had a more than hour conversation with them today. They serve at Triangle Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're getting ready to uh, do some teaching there. It'll be in the fall of 2020. I'm doing this podcast in January of 2020. And so it, it was a great conversation as we began to start de developing a plan uh, for that meeting. If you'd like for me to come and speak at your church, uh, whether it's a Sunday one-and-done meeting or if it's training biblical counselors or uh, teaching a worldview of how to do discipleship within the local church, if it's a retreat, uh, men's group, women's group, whatever it is, if you'd like for me to come and teach, please contact us and we can start talking about that in a couple of weeks, January the 17th. 
I'll be in Sarasota, Florida, and so if you're in that area, uh, come to the Hope Conference at, at Calvary Chapel in Sarasota, Florida, and if you need some contact information, please let me know about that. I'm going to share a case study with you in this podcast, and we'll just work through it, and then as you assess, maybe you want to make some notes as to uh, how you can implement some of these. I'm going to give you seven tools that you can implement immediately into your your marriage. It also works great for other relationships as well. Here's how we'll begin. Mabel is is talking. She says, why do I get mad at my husband, but I do not get angry at my friends? Why do I extend grace to others, but if my husband does the slightest thing wrong, I respond in anger. These were the first two questions that Mabel asked me during our counseling session. She was noticeably angry at herself. She was admittedly upset at her husband, Biff. During our counseling session, she asked why she could receive correction from her friend Madge, but was unwilling to accept correction from her husband, Biff. She said this tension amazed, and it baffled her. And then she added this, Madge can tell me anything negative about my life, and it rather uh, rarely bothers me. She has spoken some challenging things to me, and I typically listen. I thank her and even try to respond by changing. But when Biff says anything that I perceive as negative, condescending, or corrective, I fly off the handle. That's a that she gets angry at times, or as James says, she murders. At times, I won't talk to him for a couple of days. Silent treatment. Why is this? Mabel is asking. Now, you probably have perceived the answer from her initial question. Her initial question was, Why do I get mad at my husband, but I do not get mad at my friends. I'm sure you already know because it is quite apparent. The most glaring problem and implication of her question are that they are not friends. Biff and Mabel are not friends. Sadly, a couple can be married for 20 plus years and come to the place of not being friends. This situation was true for Mabel and Biff. To get underneath her questions, you do have to ask why they are not friends. I won't give you the short answer. The reason they are not friends is because the reason Mabel can receive correction from Madge and not from her husband is that there are no outstanding, unresolved conflicts between her and Madge. That's why. There are no outstanding, unresolved conflicts between her and Madge, and that is why she can receive correction from Madge, but not from Biff. If Mabel and Madge have have ever been on the outs, they have been able to work through it. But unfortunately for Mabel and Biff... There have been so many hurts that the accumulative effect of the disappointments has left her bitter and angry. Mabel noted when they would go out to eat that they usually sat in silence. Or, of course, we have mobile devices now, and so you can escape through your mobile device rather than talking to your spouse. And if there happens to be a television in the corner of the room, you can watch that as well. 
But when someone would show up from the church while they were eating, they became talking heads. The reason they could talk freely with others was that there was no unresolved past hostilities between them or their church buddies. It's the same reason that Mabel can talk to Madge. There's no unresolved past hostilities. As soon as their friends would leave, they would revert to sitting in silence, watching the television, going on their phones. It was like a default switch. Isn't that the way of bitterness and anger? And unforgiveness, a deadly collection of sin problems that can really destroy a relationship. And rather than pressing into their problems and to each other, they use distractions and pseudo-solutions. Mabel said the silence of the meal could be deafening. Sometimes they would go shopping or go to movies, two more pseudo-solutions. Other times they would travel together or invite friends over to their home. It's not wrong to shop or to go to movies or to travel together or in or hospitality, inviting friends over the over to your home. But those are pseudo solutions if if that is your answer to resolve this past conflict. Biff found his work to be a tolerable and disguised escape, while Mabel had her friends who brought a respite into their broken marriage through the fun girl things they would do. But through it all, Mabel and Biff could coexist in harmony. Well, you could put that in quotation marks most of the time, at least until they had to work through something. Their home was like the dirty carpet illustration It had gradually changed colors for years, though mostly unnoticed. Then someone moved the couch. Guess what? They were shocked at how dirty their carpet had become. Rather than dealing with each piece of dirt as it happened, they rarely dealt with anything. Now, after many years of not responding biblically with their problems, their marriage has seemingly soiled beyond hope. Their problem is what makes dating so lovely. At the end of the evening, you're dating with this special person. Uh, From the boy's perspective, you can get rid of your girlfriend. I say that tongue-in-cheek for those of you who are impulsively angry and and you really react rather than understanding the context. But you can get rid of the girlfriend. You drop her off at her home and you go to yours. It's a beautiful life. But be warned, all of you dating people, after marriage, you can't, quote, get rid of the girl at all. There is a virtual tying of the knot to the hip all the time. I remember how easy and fun it was to date Lucia, my wife. We had a blast during that season of our lives. But when we two sinners began living with each other, Some previously hidden and easily dismissed things from our dating relationship surfaced that we did not know how to deal with biblically. There was no plan to accommodate our sinfulness. We did work hard through our conflicts by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, we didn't stop until we had a fight plan in place. 
You see, you, it's unavoidable that you're going to get in dust-ups. You're going to have conflict. I, I call it a, fl- a fight. You, you, you can call it whatever you wish, but it's unavoidable. Therefore, you need a conflict plan, a fight plan in place, a process that we developed that allowed us to work through and resolve our conflicts. The one thing we did not want was the dirty carpet syndrome. And so dating relationships can deceive Especially, you'll, you'll realize how deceptive it is when you move into a 24-7 relationship. Also, cyber relationships deceive. Though I find some redemptive value in Facebook, I have also observed that one of the reasons Facebook is so popular is because you can have nearly risk, risk-free relationships. This is another pseudo-solution. Shoot, you can unfriend a person and you can block, you can hide their feeds, you can keep your chat box turned off, you can ignore friend requests, feel the power in these these cyber relationships. On the positive side, you can make friends around the world while staying free from the challenges that come when two sinners have to coexist in real time and in real space. Cyber relationships are far easier to maintain while giving the perception, and this is the deception, that you are relating in fully satisfying ways, minimally it is a false intimacy. In worst case scenarios, it can be willful deception designed to foster what can't be established and maintained in your marriage. Facebook can allow you to hide in plain view of others. It can lull you into cyber sleep. What you really need if your marriage is drifting toward hostility or is already there, you need to get yourself a fight plan, a conflict resolution plan. Biff and Mabel had many avoidance tactics, and they used them, including dating and social media and shopping, and movies, and and so forth. And while they presented a facade of togetherness, they were anything but that. Sadly, they did not know how to even begin to repair their broken marriage. Do you have a fight plan? Do you have a way to confront, to resolve, to remove the sin that comes between you and your spouse, or if you're not married, between you and another relationship. The better question is, how does the gospel help you with sin removal? Biff and Mabel's plan was to ignore, as much as they could, the sinful things that were going on between them, the things that they were doing to each other. The result of their strategy was not only ineffective, but it was causing them to drift from each other. Mabel is an angry and bitter woman. It was obvious from the counseling with her. She is unwilling to forgive her husband while holding resentment against him for all the times he legitimately failed her. And I do say legitimately, what she's saying is not untrue. You see, Biff is not an innocent man either. He has sinned many times against his bride. And even though Biff and Mabel have been married for 23 years, they have decided not to get along. It is a choice. Neither one of them is a victim. 
They refuse to humble themselves before God and work together in the fight against sin. Biff and Mabel have a toxic marriage. How would you counsel them? How would you direct them to start the long road, the marathon, to redeeming the marriage? I want to give you a few thoughts that I hope will stimulate you as you ponder this couple, and I trust that if 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 you really need this to apply to you, that you would do the due diligence and be humble enough to make these practical applications. Seven practical keys. Number one, gospel, the gospel. We always start with the gospel. Mabel has Biff in view, not the gospel. She is Biff-centered, not gospel-centered. Mabel is more aware of what Biff has done wrong than what Christ has done right. If she altered her view, it would be life-changing. This point has to be her first order of business. She has lost sight of Calvary. According to Mabel, Bilf is the biggest sinner in their marriage. This worldview is her most glaring mistake. According to the gospel, she is the biggest sinner in their union. As long as she continues to see herself as more righteous than Bilf, She will never be able to help redeem the marriage. As Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And if both of them had this perspective, they would be equality. They're both unrighteous. Not one person seeing themselves as better or more right or less wrong than the other person. Mabel does not understand an obvious implication of the gospel. No person is worse or better than anyone else. Christ died on the cross because of Biff, and Christ died on the cross because of Mabel. There is only one grade we all have collectively failed. Though Mabel knows this information intellectually, her craving for a better marriage overpowers this very fundamental gospel truth. Her desire for a better relationship, good desire, but this desire sits at the center of her life, and she has pushed the cross to the perimeter. As I said, she has lost sight of Calvary. And by the way, Biff has done the same thing. He has displaced the cross with his pet preferences and his ideas about how Mabel should be. This greater than, I'm better than you attitude, self-righteousness is what it is. It's not only the death to any marriage, but it puts you outside of the grace of God. Christ did not come for the righteous. Be warned. He engages the sick, the broken, and the unrighteous. There has to be a humbling effect of the gospel in order to appropriate, not just appropriate God's grace, but, but to, be, to be able to be empowered by God as he gives, he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. If there is one smidgen of self-righteousness in any heart, The Lord will disqualify that person from his transformative grace. Or as I mentioned, James said in 4.6, he will oppose you outside of Christ. You and I are not better than any other human, regardless of who they are or what they have done. Seven practical keys to 
push hostility out of your marriage and to bring on harmony. Number one is the gospel. Number two is confession. With the humbling effect of the gospel now in your life, once Mabel and Biff begin living in line with the gospel, they will be able to be able and motivated to confess their sins against each other to each other. One of the reasons they have ongoing hostilities is because neither one of them has been humble enough to admit their wrongdoing to God and each other. A gospel-shaped marriage is a sin-confessing one. Biff, once Biff and Mabel get the gospel fixed in their minds, where Calvary is not on the perimeter but is dead center, and once they purpose to live it out in their lives, they will be able to begin the sin removal process. The gospel is centered. Confession is coming. Here's the order. You start with the gospel, and then you move towards sin confession, and then number three, forgiveness. For two decades, Mabel said she could count on one hand how many times either one of them has come to the other and sought forgiveness for sins committed. It makes you wonder why she would not understand why there's a problem in their marriage. She said the few times they have confessed sin to each other was usually after a church meeting. One time it was after watching the movie Fireproof. Sadly, forgiveness has been nothing more than a quick apology without specifics. And, and when they were in some kind of tender moment, but there was, no, there was no longevity, there was no traction built. True reconciliation can happen again when the gospel is in view. And so the gospel leads to confession. Number three leads to forgiveness. Number four, expectation. Surprisingly, when Biff sins, it typically catches Mabel off guard. This problem is another misunderstanding and misapplication of the gospel. People are sinners. No person is righteous. When Biff sins or does not meet Mabel's expectations, she immediately, to use her language, not mine, flies off the handle. Every time she does this, the conflict moves from what Biff did to Mabel's response to what Biff did. It is never right to sin in response to sin. If you do sin in response to sin, you will create such a distraction that you may not be able to get back to the original issue or the original person. And so when Biff sins and she flies off the handle in her anger, it's hard to get to dealing with what Biff did because now she has complicated the situation. And this dynamic has happened too many times to count in their marriage. She has an expectation that triggers her. And so number one, you have to get the gospel right. Two, you start confessing. Number three, you start forgiveness. Number four, you have to deal with unreasonable expectations. And then number five, accountability. Though Mabel has talked to Madge about some of these things, Madge has been deficient in her counsel. In short, neither Biff nor Mabel have competent biblical accountability, and that is an issue. After a little probing, it became apparent that they did not want anyone involved in their lives, not at that level. They said this kind of counseling was too hard. Besides, when they go to counseling, people will find out they went to counseling, and they don't want that to happen, and so fear of man kicks in. 
if if your reputation about what people think about you is stronger than your desire to make your marriage right, then your marriage will never be right. And because of Biff and Mabel's good reputation in their church, they have resisted humbling themselves to keep to seek help from within their community. Sadly, their marriage has unraveled to such a place that what they have tried to keep secret has become more and more evident. Thankfully, the more exposed, I this is what Milton Vincent said from the, the Gospel Primer, quote, Thankfully, the more exposed I see that I am by the cross, the more I find myself opening up to others about ongoing issues in my life. Why would anyone be shocked to hear of my struggles with past and present sin when the cross already told them I am a desperately sinful person, Milton Vincent says. Number six, serving. Another implication of the gospel is blessing others. Jesus came to serve rather than to be served. Conversely, Biff and Mabel have this gospel idea reversed. While they should be aggressively seeking how to bless each other, Mabel is not seeking Biff's interest, Philippians 2, but consistently lobbying for her own, and Biff is doing likewise. That's part of the irony in this case study is that Biff and Mabel, they mirror each other. They are doppelgangers. They are not as much a one-flesh union as they are competitors. They are competing, bartering, angling for their love cups to be adequately filled by the other person. The text I mentioned earlier in Philippians is 2.3, and Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so here are seven practical tips that you need to wrestle with and and make sure that you understand them, not just theologically, but also practically, and then you begin to implement them in your life. Number one is the gospel. It must be dead center of your lives. Number two, the gospel will humble you, which will release you to begin owning the things that you have done. Thus, number two is confession. Number three Well, forgiveness is right on the heels of confessing. Why confess your sin if you're not going to ask for forgiveness? And so number three is forgiveness. And then you want to address your expectations. We have expectations for other people, and sometimes those expectations are not what reality would suggest. And if our expectations are elevated, you may do what Mabel says she does when her expectations are not met. She flies off the handle. Number five is accountability. This is a big deal, especially if your reputation is in play, that you will not get the accountability that you need. We need others speaking into our lives, and it is vital to take Milton's quote from the Gospel Primer that The gospel already communicates that we are desperately sinful people, and so that that information is already out there. And so there's no really logical or biblical reason to be so guarded about your reputation that it would dissuade you from seeking help from others. Number six is serving 
this is the other other centered aspect of the gospel. And Biff and Mabel need to be seeking to serve each other rather than this elevated expectation of, of the other person serving them primarily or first of all. And then finally, number seven is freedom. When Biff and Mabel respond to the gospel correctly, they will see each other as comparable sinners in need of God's grace rather than self-righteously looking down on each other. They will also find immeasurable grace as they humbly confess their sin to each other, and thus they will keep short to non-existing accounts between each other. The illustration that I gave earlier about the dirty carpet syndrome Well, as they keep these short accounts, their carpet will not be dirty. Repentance and forgiveness will be a constant attitude in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives, and their home as they seek the other's good for the glory of God. Eventually, the past, the unresolved hostilities that have characterized their marriage will be swallowed up by the consistent application of these gospel truths to their marriage. The title of this podcast is How to Move Your Marriage from Hostility to Harmony. This applies to any relationship. I have some call to action questions at the end. And so if you want to get on the website, look for that article. Again, type hostility in the search box and it'll pop right up for you and you can read it. You can go to the bottom of the article and you'll see a print PDF email icon. And you can click on that and you can choose one of those. You can print it off. You can PDF it if you wish, and you can email it to a friend. Here are a couple of questions for you. How do you struggle with anything in this podcast and why do you? How do you struggle with anything that I've shared with you and why is that so? Also, in what way do you need to change in light of this insight that God is giving you as you're meditating upon what I shared. Number two, are you waiting for the other person to make the first move by humbling themselves? If so, can you biblically defend that posture? Number three, if you believe your marriage is too far gone, then I appeal to you to find a competent friend who can walk with you because it's not. There is hope in the gospel, and maybe you just need to seek some help. Thank you so much for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.